everyone. My name is Jing Chai, and I'm a co-host of the Pulse podcast by Wharton Digital Health. In this episode, I sat down with Aaron Lee, the VP of Global Operations and Managing Director of Fablon Health USA, to discuss how this London-based telehealth startup leverages learnings from its global offices to scale an international healthcare company. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and review us wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Instagram at The Pulse by Wharton Digital Health. We're excited to welcome Aaron Lee of Fablon Health, a London-based telehealth startup leveraging AI to provide quality and affordable primary care around the world. Aaron is the VP of Global Operations and Managing Director of Fablon Health USA. Aaron has over 15 years of experience leading high-performing global operations teams during stages of exponential growth at companies including Uber and Google. Aaron, welcome to the show. We're really excited to have you today. Thanks. It's great to be here. Awesome. So to kick us off, I know you recently relocated back to London and you've been an expat in London for a few years now. So can you share with us some of your favorite spots in London and how being in London has been given all the lockdowns recently? Sure. So it's a little embarrassing because I've lived in London, I think a little over five years, and I've actually spent most of my time outside of it traveling for work. But I would say for those that are unfamiliar with the city, it's a big, vibrant city. But one of the things that really stands out is all of the sort of natural spaces. So I live in a little village called Primrose Hill, which is right outside Regent's Park in North London. And I think particularly after a long week or two of travel coming home and sort of traipsing through Hampstead Heath or Primrose Hill for a walk is really something to behold. And the same is true of like Hyde Park. You, You sort of make your way through Hyde Park up towards the Victorian Albert Museum, to the Natural History Museum. It's very soothing and you feel quite cultured by the end of it. That's awesome. I know that a lot of the green space in London, I'm sure is very coveted now given the lockdowns and COVID. So I wanted to kick us off by launching a bit into what Babylon Health is. So a lot of our listeners are based in the US and there's some familiarity with Babylon Health, but it would be really interesting to hear from your perspective how you've experienced the model that Babylon Health has championed, especially now as telehealth has become increasingly critical in providing some key healthcare services that the world has required since its shift towards more remote working styles. So for context for our listeners, Babylon Health has been a leader in telehealth services starting in the UK, and it's since then expanded internationally, covering in Asia, Africa, as well as most recently into the US. And so to start off with, can you share a little bit about what the motivation was for the founder, Ali Persa, to found Babylon Health back in 2013? Sure. So I don't know. I think, you know, he covers this in some of his TED Talks, but not a lot of people know that Babylon Health isn't Ali's first foray into healthcare. He's actually spent quite a bit of time and he started before Babylon. He launched a company called Circle Hospitals. It is now sort of the largest private hospital group in the UK. But at the time, it was sort of his effort to bring a much higher experience and quality of care than was available within the NHS. And I think what he would tell you is as part of that experience, he really identified two sort of fundamental driving factors in the improvement towards healthcare. And one is what he quickly understood was that most people's healthcare requirements have actually very little to do with hospitals. So it's everything that happens before or after that really matters. And so he'll tell you that he left to focus on really how do you develop a $10 solution for something before it becomes a $1,000 problem and really focus more on holistic care and healthcare. 
And then two, sort of the second component was that the delivery of really high quality care doesn't have to come at the expense of a great patient experience. So if, if you've been to some of those hospitals in the UK, you know, they have a Michelin starred restaurant and they're developed with best in class architects and they really go out of their way to sort of think about patient experience from everything from free parking to sort of how you move throughout the hospital. And at the time, people thought it was bananas. But I think it's really critical to understanding the way that he focuses the business on exceptional quality and experience. And then sort of the final tenant of that is, so how do you do both of those things at scale? You really need a front door and primary care is that launch point to address both of those challenges. That's really fascinating hearing about creating and curating a patient journey that captures from when you go into the front door to even little things that you may not think about, like the parking space that sort of takes a load off of people's minds when they're thinking about care. So given that sort of more brick and mortar model, how did Ali transition to a model like Babylon Health, especially so far ahead of this telemedicine curve and trend that we're experiencing today? So I think in some ways, of course, he's a visionary, but he was looking in some ways for the passive least resistance. So to take a step back, sort of at a high level, what we look to do at Babylon is really combine cutting edge AI and other technologies with sort of best in class human clinical expertise and re-engineer healthcare. And that's really aligned with our mission of making healthcare accessible and affordable for every person on earth. So how do you do that? To make healthcare accessible, why don't you deliver it through the devices that people already own? And to make it affordable, let's use technology to ease the burden on our doctors, which are fundamentally your most expensive resource in the delivery of care outside of sort of your physical spaces. So by automating the routine tasks, what we're doing is allowing doctors to focus more of their time on what they do best, which is giving care to patients who need it most. And then we use our tech to also step in early and try and identify those critical touch points so that people can become more informed about their diseases so they can make better decisions and stay healthier for longer. That makes a lot of sense. I know adoption on the provider side, as well as the customer side, requires a bit of socialization and education, given the healthcare system has traditionally operated in largely the same way for decades. So what was that process like to start educating both on the provider side, as well as on the customer side, and sort of socializing them towards this new telehealth model of care? So it depends a little bit on the market, but I'll start with sort of our GPID hand business. And I think if you go back three years, a little over three years when it first launched, I think people thought we were crazy because what we were saying was at the time, we're going to give the population incredible access. We're not going to restrict access, which is sort of fundamental to the way that NHS operates and, and for many good reasons. We're going to drive a digital first experience. So we're going to treat 80% plus conditions totally remotely, and we're going to have better outcomes. And I think, of course, you know, there's always the NHS is a national institution. I think there is some sensitivity around a new approach, like how can it work? But I think if you take a step back and you look at the way that our lives are already evolving, it's not as big of a jump as you might think, right? We've already digitized quite a bit of our life, whether it's Amazon, Uber, Netflix. So I think there was a recognition that it was only a matter of time before that expands. And I think particularly our early adopters were really hungry for it. On the clinical side, I think some of the concerns were around, well, is there going to be quality of care? Like, how can you really drive a, a meaningful difference to, for all intents and purposes, a very efficient and effective healthcare system? And my feedback to them is always just give us a chance. Try our platform. Try the experience. And I think you overcome a lot in that way. In the U.S., obviously, it's a little bit different. I think healthcare is more distributed. People are a little bit more digital friendly, but we have the same things to overcome. Absolutely. 
taking a step back for some of our listeners who may not be as familiar with the NHS, can you walk yeah. us through at a high level how that works and how sort of providers and especially more novel provider systems like Babylon Health fit into that overall jigsaw puzzle? Yeah, so the NHS or the national healthcare system is the UK's, as it were, national healthcare system. And it's, you know, I think it's best in class in terms of how do you deliver really remarkable outcomes across an entire population? So unlike the US where healthcare is really a privilege, in the UK, it's more of a right. And so what you have is a pretty well integrated system across a variety of trusts that cover your healthcare needs from cradle to grave. And they do that by working with sort of practices in a capitated arrangement. So what that means is if I have a patient list, I am paid a certain amount per year to cover all of the care for that patient. And that's based on actuary tables that are, you know, are built over the population in terms of how much the expected cost is. And then I'm responsible for delivering care that is measured in terms of effectiveness via something called QAF, which is a measure of the outcomes of your patient. That's really helpful. So looking at some of those quality metrics, has there been any sort of reactions or criticism around programs like GP at hand or things that are sort of looking at what the clinical efficaciousness of some of the treatments have been? Yeah, I mean, I would say at a high level, our results sort of speak for themselves. So the QA framework, quality and outcomes framework, you know, 93% of our members, one, rate us incredibly highly in terms of experience. So four and five stars, they love their accessibility. They love the care that they get. Our quality outcomes framework, I think, was over 96% of all available points, which is some of the best in the country. And I think what we're more proud of, though, is when you look at individuals who may have historically been left behind by traditional care, so those that may have not had a proactive cancer screening, we were able to engage with them in a way that hadn't been seen before, which really drove much better for outcomes for us, but savings overall for the entire NHS. That makes a lot of sense. I would imagine a lot of that also bubbles down to member education and reaching out and making sure people are engaged, especially because, as you said, a lot of the way that Babylon accesses people is with and through devices they already own, which limits and reduces some of the barriers that may otherwise be there in a more traditional model. Did you find that member education or thinking really about consumer on the strength of the consumerization of healthcare, that that was a big part of the Babylon driving mission as well? Absolutely. And I think as someone who doesn't come from healthcare, and I can say this is true, not just of the NHS, but also of the US healthcare system, I think people will be shocked by how non-digital it is. Like fax machines are very much still a major way of life, phone calls. And so in that regard, actually, I think our patient population and our users really keep us on our toes and they push for a lot more digitization. You know, can I get more results via app? Can I engage with you? across a variety of modalities, how do we take this even further? And so I think there are sort of our best trusted testers and they really, I think, force us to be as cutting edge as we can in terms of making more and more accessible to them via their devices. I want to pivot now to thinking about the international expansion and that aspect of Babylon's model, specifically because that's sort of in your wheelhouse. And to kick us off, I'd love to understand from your perspective what Babylon's orienting thesis is when it comes to expansion and how that ties to its overall mission around making healthcare more accessible globally. I think it's really pretty simple. I think we start with accessibility. So 
I think we are fortunate enough to have a lot of interest from a variety of partners. And what we're looking for are, whether they're health insurers or they're provider groups, people that are trying to solve challenges across their communities with accessibility and affordability. So it's not just a third world problem, it's also a first world problem. We're also looking for people who are willing to be truly innovative in the way that they approach it. And I think the Babylon model requires not compromise, but it's a different way of working in terms of the way that we manage our supply networks and the tools and systems that we use. We obviously think it's better and our outcomes show that, but there has to be a willingness to engage at that sort of fundamental level with us in order to proceed. And I know Babylon has already been across multiple different geographies. Given how variable the regulatory landscape as well as provider networks and even understanding the local cultures and consumer education in some of these countries may be, how do you go about navigating that expansion globally across all these different terrains? This is always the question that people have, and they can't believe that you can truly do global healthcare. And I don't want to oversimplify, but you know what I will say, and this was also true at Uber, is people are more alike than I think we want to believe. And that's absolutely true of healthcare. Fundamentally, it's pretty similar globally. And let me sort of caveat that by saying people get sick in the same way. You don't experience an illness differently in Rwanda than you do in Rhode Island. Now, your treatment options, the way your care is delivered, who pays for it, who approves it, that of course varies dramatically. But the way you get sick, really, it's the same. If you sort of look at the core pathways, particularly in primary care, there's 12 core pathways. They're all very similar, not just at a superficial level. So uh, concepts of blood tests, referrals, your core annual, all of that exists. But additionally, the why, the reason that things exist. I talked a little bit earlier about quality outcomes framework, which is a measurement of quality across the population. Same principle in the US, they just call it EDIS. Now, again, I'm sort of oversimplifying a bit, but the fundamentals are really the same. And so that's true of the care. It's also true of the way we engage. So we just launched our forced, you know, fully at-risk, digital-first practice in the Boot Hill of Missouri. The way that we engage those patients on the ground and work with them in their communities. We took a page out of our Rwanda playbook. People can't believe it, but the populations themselves are really similar. So the long answer and the short answer is it's actually, there's a lot of synergy and it's actually very ripe for scale. That's really interesting. It does sound like there are sort of archetypes of platforms of care and they're not necessarily geographically tied. It sounds like it maybe in some cases has more to do with the patient population in a locality or other aspects that are actually scalable globally. And one thing that you just mentioned is around this at-risk model of care. So can you share and elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by that? And especially if Babylon Health does experiment with different ways, because understanding the context of the U.S. is still very much heavily fee-for-service based and understanding what the different permutations of other care models are that Babylon may be exploring. Sure. And this is, I think, a good example of ways that we're trying to export some of what we've learned globally into the U.S. market. Although, to be sure, we are not the first to explore this in the U.S. and there's quite a good history around risk and capitated arrangements. But fundamentally, I think, wasn't four or five years ago where Ali, I think, recognized that fee-for-service, urgent care, transactional telemedicine was really going to be a commodity But also fundamentally, it doesn't get you that full primary care relationship that really allows you to drive meaningful change across sort of a longitudinal experience. And so what we have in the UK, as I mentioned earlier, is sort of a capitated arrangement. 
And to oversimplify, that's sort of what we mean by going at risk in the U.S. So we go in and we will work with a health plan or a provider to say, we're going to take on responsibility for this population and we'll give them full end-to-end care. And yes, we're going to use our digital first front door and we're going to integrate with your existing provider networks and your referral networks. But in turn, like we will take on the risk for that population. So we'll take the upside and the downside, as it were. So it's really our way of putting our money where our mouth is in terms of the way that we deliver care and the results that we see. Got it. That's really interesting. So in that model, Babylon Health both acts as sort of a telehealth platform, but is also able to connect patients with in-person care services across existing provider systems. Is that a that's fair right? And so service? that's right. And if you look at our model, I think when I say primary care, in some ways, yes, that can be everything from coughs, colds, but it really goes beyond that. And so do we offer sort of transactional telemedicine? Absolutely. But we also offer behavioral health and whole person care. So if you're a patient with us in one of our, whether it's GP at hand or in the US, you know, you're assigned a care coordinator who helps you navigate the healthcare system. You have a primary care provider who can help you, you know, with your clinical needs. Depending on your chronic conditions, you may be assigned a specialty nurse who will work with you on a care plan. So it's really more about holistic care and really not transactional. And I do think that is really industry leading and best in class. And of course, we do see some of our competitors pivoting into the same space, but there's so there, I think the competition will be good for consumers longer term. Do you see this trend in healthcare being adopted by some of the institutional players or some of the bigger provider systems as well? And do you also see sort of tailwinds shifting the direction of healthcare, especially in countries like the US there as consumers sort of get more leverage in terms of being able to pick from a vast number of different services? Yes. And I think that's great for the consumer experience. You know, a lot of people ask me, what do you think about XYZ competitor? How do you think about Amazon or Village MD or CityBlock? And this isn't a winner-take-all market. And, And fundamentally, I think the healthcare experience in the US is broken. And so all of this competition, and I hope the relaxation of some regulations, not all, will really result in a rising tide lifting all boats, right? And so I think there's a good reason for much of the regulation in place. Of course, it's a little outdated. They didn't anticipate sort of a digital revolution. I think COVID has really been an incredible tailwind in terms of, for example, I didn't realize even as an American how federated the U.S. healthcare system is. And there are very hard borders across states. I think COVID you know, really required the relaxation of that cross-state care. And I think we'll benefit from that. Consumers will have access to the best-in-class providers regardless of location. And I do think a lot of health providers, physician groups are looking to digitize their solution, whether it's for cost savings or better experience or because they don't have a choice because that's the way the market moves. I expect to see a lot more of this over the next few years. And on the topic of COVID, how has COVID shaped Babylon Health's offerings or even plan in terms of growth and expansion in the near term and the medium and longer term? I think COVID in some ways, one, as I mentioned, really it helped us with our U.S. expansion in terms of one, relaxation of some of the most intense cross-state licensing requirements. But two, it I think it helped those who may not have previously felt they had access issues open up to new modalities of care. That's true of the end user and also the government, who I think is now willing to consider digital first delivery for things they may not have considered in the past. I think it's a better experience for consumers and it's, in many cases, a less expensive option. 
for us too, I think it was a good inflection point for us as a business. Ali has built a Babylon around the circle of health, which really touches users across both sick care and healthcare. And we deliver that via our service funnel, which looks to provide a range of modalities for users to engage with us in a way that they choose. COVID was really just a way to test that delivery model in a very hyper-focused way. And so I think what we came out of that was a reinforcement of our core business platform and fundamentals and a reinvigoration of a speed to delivery and time to market. One thing you mentioned earlier is the idea that COVID has also highlighted some existing pressure points and gaps in coverage, most likely around the world, but also specifically in the U.S. So given this momentum and some of the sort of near-term stock gap legislation around cross-state borders, loosening up some of those regulations, where do you see other opportunities for more systematic reform around the healthcare system in the U.S.? And do you see any of the measures that have been sanctioned as a result of COVID lasting even after COVID has sort of subsided? One, I certainly hope so. I hope that the regulatory changes stick not just for Babylon's sake, but for the consumer's sake. And like I said, I think the biggest takeaway is opening up a supply network to consumers that gives them a much broader selection and choice. Like let us match you with the provider that is best suited to serve your particular needs rather than the one that's down the street. So I hope that stays. I think too, what COVID demonstrated was all of the socioeconomic factors and how they play out in a really acute ecosystem. So in that regard, the people who, in many cases, the communities that are most left behind by traditional health care for a variety of socioeconomic factors were at a greater risk for COVID. And so there, I think there was an exponential need to try and reach these populations and use non-traditional methods. And in fact, a lot of our partners were really looking to us you know, how can we leverage your digital technology to get into communities who now have no access to bricks and mortar care or community clinics and need education and support? So I hope that continues and we will certainly look to help push that. And I know the rest of the industry will as well. That makes a lot of sense. Are there any near term policy goals that haven't been achieved yet that you think are high potential and high impact for the consumer? I think there's probably a number of them. I think it's very early days in the Biden administration, and I certainly don't want this to turn political. But what I will say is I think we have a good opportunity with someone like Biden, who I don't think has anything to prove. I think he's already said he's going to be a one-term president to really pressure test the American assumption that healthcare is a privilege, not a right. And I'm hopeful that things like Medicare for All, improved accessibility, and really an outcomes-driven framework that leverages a lot of what's done not just in the UK, but abroad, will really dramatically improve the experience for the US consumer. So I I think we're all really cautiously optimistic and waiting patiently to see what comes down the pipe. It looks like we won't have to wait long based on his current momentum uh, in office. Absolutely. I think this is definitely an inflection point for US healthcare system in terms of having enough political momentum around a lot of citizens really experiencing the squeeze in our healthcare system that COVID has wrought. So I'm also cautiously optimistic that things that are absolutely bipartisan in the sense that everyone knows that healthcare is important, providing better care and better access for people. Now, one thing I know about Babylon starting in the U.S. is the focus on the Medicaid population. And this sort of ties to what we discussed earlier about bringing access, especially to those who may not traditionally have as much access or healthcare. So can you describe a little bit 
about Babylon USA's mission and sort of what the goal is and how the plan is evolving for the initial launch of what the longer term plan may be. Yeah. And so look, it's very early days for us in the US. And I think we started with Medicaid just sort of, as I mentioned earlier, because access is such an issue. And I think we're fortunate to have partners, both providers and plan-based who I think are equally mission-driven and are actually really committed to delivering high quality care to their population. So fairness, I think payers often get a bad rap. And I'm here to say that there's certainly payers out there that are fundamentally focused on making a dramatic change to the, the experience of their covered lives. And so that's sort of what took us to Missouri. We're looking to make it accessible and affordable for the population in the boot heel. We want to pressure test some of our assumptions around what digital first looks like. I think, again, we launched in October, it's early days, but for all intents and purposes, the early results are you know, that the model, it works. Of course, there's regional nuance. And I think we're looking to learn from a lot of the really exceptional work that's out there in terms of engaging communities and really taking a hyper-local approach. I don't want to, I certainly don't want to act like we've come in and like we know it all. We're really looking to partner and learn with the existing infrastructure to really drive increased accessibility and really understand what is different about populations and what is the same. I think as an aside, it's also a good way for us to test our assumptions about how global our services, you know, I mentioned earlier, taking our learnings from engagement in Rwanda health clinics to Missouri, we're certainly taking the page out of that playbook. And we're going to pressure test our pathways and our, the approach we use in the UK, uh, obviously, new, like updated for the Missouri need. I think that is a really interesting part of the Babylon model in that you can leverage a lot of this intellectual capital from different regions of the world and apply it in a very nimble way. So I think right now, the way healthcare operates a lot of the time is quite siloed and it's quite country dependent because of all the different obstacles around regulation and population. But it sounds like that assumption may actually not be fully formed because there are all these corollaries that are similar or consistent across geographies. That's really fascinating to hear. That's right. Look, healthcare is hard, right? And there's value in focus. And so, I mean, you could spend many, many careers just focused on the U.S. So I think Babylon in that way is unique in that we did take a broad approach first. My hope is that more minds take the approach, particularly in the U.S., where can we find similarities and how are we similar versus this American exceptionalism, which is whatever works elsewhere isn't going to work here. We're absolutely different. Like, of course, there is nuance. But if we spent less time trying to explain why we're different, we could leverage the great work that's happening in other countries and then really double down on solving the uniquely American problems. And I would love to see more of that. And I say that as an American. And I'm also curious, when you describe the partnerships that you develop with providers, that sounds like a key ingredient of the secret sauce around Babylon's success. How do you identify those providers that are going to be key partners for you? And how do you respond when they may not deliver in the same ways that you would expect out of a partnership? So I think we twofold. In many cases, you know, they find us. And I think there's a lot of really innovative providers out there that I think have been struggling on a smaller scale to do what we try to do on a macro level. And so we're not sort of this healthcare savior, but I think a lot of people come in and like, we love what you're doing. I've wanted to do this in my career. How can I help? Right. And so in that way, we're very fortunate. I think when we look at partnerships, we're really looking to evaluate how are we going to work together? This is who we are as a business, but what problems are you trying to solve? And I think aligning up front on shared outcomes 
shared goals has really helped us avoid getting to a place where we've sort of signed something, we're halfway down the road and we're like, oh, actually, you know, paths diverge. And in fairness, I think when we explain the ways that we look at quality and evaluating providers for the digital first platform, how we screen and engage and how we evaluate quality, I think there's enough similarities between how this is done today and bricks and mortar that we're able to find those shared proof points. That makes a lot of sense. And how has it been like on the payer side? I would imagine that that's one piece that one is going to be fairly different, for example, the NHS model versus yeah. all the different the marketplace of payers in the US. And how have you been able to convince payers to include Babylon and its network into their broader insurance coverage networks? In fairness, I think this is something that payers have been thinking about for a while. I think they would tell you they've been looking at Oscar. They've been watching this space, and I think they've been looking for a partner to help them unlock what it means for their populations. I would say the door opener for us, for lack of a better term, has really been our results in the NHS, where we sort of demonstrated, look, we have 24-7, 365 care, a high degree of accessibility. We're still profitable on raise within margins. We have best-in-class experience. And by the way, we save downstream costs anywhere 25 to 35%. So even if you're the CFO and you're the most skeptical person on the planet, you'll give us a second meeting. But I think in fairness to payers like our partner Centene, a lot of them are very aligned with our mission and approach. They are looking for a holistic solutions for their populations, and they want those better outcomes. They want to drive accessibility, and they've been tremendous partners for us in delivering the model. I think we've learned a lot from them about their populations, about what's worked, about these communities, and they learn from us in terms of what we've tried. And so I think we're moving twice as fast together. And I think we look forward to doing more of that with different payers around the U.S. That's great. And one thing too around your work and the idea of linking together teams from across different countries is the idea of being an effective leader across all these different channels. So what tactics have you found to be particularly impactful as you think about managing a team that is so spread out globally and across so many different cultures? I mean, the short answer is if you hire exceptional people, they sort of overcome your limitations as a manager. And as I get older and older, I sort of realize more and more my limitations. But I think One, I'll say that I love diverse teams. I don't just say that to sort of give it airtime. I think it really does breed innovation. And I think we're very intentional about looking for a diverse mix of backgrounds. That's not just socioeconomic, it's educational. It's even like Myers-Briggs, right? You don't want all ENTJs. So I don't want a team that works or thinks in the same way. I've been on those teams where everyone has the same blue box approach. And there's pros and cons, but when you're doing what we do, you need a cacophony of voices. And so I think the key is one, recognizing that you're going to have differences and background and personalities. What can you unite on? And for me, it's really like, as you build a team, not a collection of individuals, like what are the characteristics that are the same? And so at least for operations at Babylon, but I would argue this probably expands beyond that. I'm looking for things like grit, like courage, resolve. This is hard. Like, can you keep going to get back up? Give a crap. We call it a little something else, but people trust us with our lives, right? I don't want anyone who's going to approach this with anything less than the respect it deserves. Like, do you stay late to solve it right the first time? There's a resilience component, humility. I don't have time for assholes or brilliant jerks. Like, we're really a team, we're in it together. And then, yeah, intelligence, not just like book smart coding, but emotional intelligence. And I think if you can build a team on those core characteristics, like the rest of the stuff sort of blends in the background. Absolutely. That was very well said. And 
segueing from that on this idea around professional leadership and any sort of growth and advice you may have our listeners, given your very robust career across different companies like Uber and Google and now in the healthcare space with Babylon, we'd love to understand a bit from your perspective, what were some of the guiding points in your career that helped you get to where you are today? Well, one I'm going to say, and I don't think people say this enough, is there is a lot of luck. I was fortunate to grow up in the Bay Area to be surrounded by the Valley. I think I was fortunate in my career moves. That's not to say that I haven't always been almost probably to a fault, singularly focused on career and hard work and ambition. But a lot of it is luck, you know, particularly Babylon was very early stage. It could have gone a different direction. Two, I think I've been very lucky with managers, particularly at key inflection points in my career, finding someone who recognizes your unique superpower or what makes you you, even if there's a little bit of abrasiveness in order to unlock your true potential, I think has been incredible for me. And I probably can only say that on reflection. Other than that, I think some of the guiding principles I've tried to look at are find a company who you love, the products you love, the service you love, you're going to use it yourself, a mission you align with. Like That goes a really long way, I think people underestimate. It helps you, I think, bridge the gap on unknowns in terms of team and management and all of that. I guess I would say... There, I know startups are super sexy, and I hope I don't regret saying this because obviously we want all the good talent we can get. But I really grew up in my early career at Google, and it's it was a mature company, and I think that structure and that way of learning and developing was incredibly invaluable to me. And yes, there was a point where I needed to move on, but getting that wisdom of elders, I think, was really really beneficial. That makes a lot of sense. Are there any other learnings that you've had throughout your career? that you want to impart on our listeners today? I'm still learning. And I think it's always funny. I hate to ask people in interviews, you know, what do you want to do in three years? Because I'm sort of still figuring it out. But one, I would say I spent a lot of my early career really trying to optimize for ambition. I really wanted... So I was trying to be very strategic about the roles and the titles and the positions I went out after because I thought it would help me be sort of like, quote unquote, successful faster. And I think that was a mistake. And, you know, I think there's this pressure, particularly in the Valley to, if you're not successful before you're 25, you're a failure. And I would say, just slow down and enjoy the ride. You know, in your early career, it's okay to be figuring out as much about the things you don't want to do as the things that you do want to do. So don't overthink it, particularly if you're in a high growth environment. You know, as Cheryl likes to say, if you're offered a seat on a rocket ship, you don't ask which one, you just get on. And that's true. Enjoy the ride. Figure out what you're good at and what you enjoy doing, what you think about in the shower, and then figure out how to do more of that. And then I guess I would say too, and this was something that I probably didn't fully appreciate at the time, but look for people that you admire. I think there's this tendency to feel like great leaders or managers, you've got to figure it out and everyone does it their own, like no man's an army. And if you have the privilege of working directly with them, great. If not, go out there and find them. I tell my team... I was a baby at Google. I had the privilege of working under Claire Hughes Johnson, who was leading AdWords sales and then our commerce business. I sort of stumbled into that, but you know, she's now CEO at Stripe. I still listen to her podcast. A lot of what I saw her do, even from afar, has informed the way that I want to lead my team. Like she was truly exceptional. I think there was an element of humanity that I still don't see in a lot of folks. She was accessible and accountable and authentic. You know, she was human. And that today has really stuck with me. Now she probably has no idea, right? But 
I try and find parts of leaders that I admire and I try and take that into my toolkit. Yeah, I'm stealing, but if it works, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. If the wheel's already been invented, you don't need to go and reinvent the wheel. Yeah. That's really fascinating. It sounds like there's definitely a large component of where we get in our lives, which is largely driven by circumstance, definitely with some personal ambition, but a lot of it is sort of out of our control and recognizing that, leaning into it, being comfortable with it, and then doing what you can to, as you say, do the things that you love, know the things that you don't love, and finding people that you want to emulate. It sounds like that's as close to a recipe for career success as we can get given all the uncertainty in the world. Yes. And don't put a timeline on it. Like there's no expiry date. Take your time. Right. Absolutely. And did you always intend to live abroad or was that also sort of a course of different opportunities that kind of came your way? So I think I had the privilege of always doing quite a bit of travel. My grandmother really took us around when I was young. So I think I always had that perspective. I did the typical American thing where I studied abroad And I was like, I'm always going to come back. But really, actually, it was driven by a couple of things. One, while I was at Google, what I saw was a a number of the executives who they were tapping to lead really important roles, whether it's Dennis Woodside or Nikesh or Philip, they were all coming from EMEA or Europe. And I was like, what's going on over there? And so I think, you know, as part of my really desire to get, to become like a world citizen, but really get a global viewpoint, I wanted to spend a lot of time overseas. And so I was fortunate enough to do that with Uber. And part of me wonders if I'll ever really go back full time. But I think there is a nuance working in the EU and across EMEA that you don't get in the US. Like there's a diversity of language and there's a complexity of regulatory systems. And I think you see why some of the best leaders in the world, I hope you don't shoot me saying that, come out of the non-US. So I wanted to get a piece of that. That makes a lot of sense. I have also appreciated somebody who spent a little bit of time in the UK that it is international on a level that I think unless you're there, people don't really fully appreciate. I think before that, I thought Chicago is international. But when you're part of free trade block, now perhaps no longer the case, but at the time (laughs) with all the different people moving in and out of the different languages, it does really push you to challenge your perceptions about normality and how you work across different cultures. It really does. And I think the UK is For anyone that's considering it, I think it's an easy way to acclimate. They speak the same language. It's a good way to get your feet wet. It's relatively low risk. And then from there, you know, I would encourage people, go spend time in the Netherlands. I think the Dutch are incredibly innovative in a lot of different ways. There's a lot to learn from the rest of Europe. And I don't want to imply that the UK is representative of that, but it's a good place to get started. Absolutely. And tying this theme back to what we discussed earlier about Babylon and its unique competitive advantages, this idea about facilitating this global exchange of ideas within the company is something that I think, from my perspective, differentiates Babylon from a lot of the different healthcare startups that are operating on a similar part of the value chain in the US. Now, after having listened to all of that, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are interested in exploring career opportunities at Babylon. To help inform their decision-making process, can you characterize the culture at Babylon Health and how you would describe the culture, especially as it spans across so many different countries? Sure. I would say now is a great time to help us shape that culture as we sort of go to sort of the 10x growth. But one of the things that also struck me in my interview with Babylon was Ali asked me a question that no one had ever asked before, which was, tell me who you are. Don't tell me what's on your resume. Tell me who you are. Tell me what's important to you. 
And it's something that we look to continue in terms of we want to understand the full person. Yes, of course, we're looking for people who are exceptional, what company isn't. I think we're looking for people who are quirky and unique in the way that they deliver sort of exceptional results. But we're also looking for people who have a sense of humanity. So I think what he'll say is, would I trust you with my children? Are you someone that I want to spend any meaningful amount of time with? And I think that's our way of getting a balance, right? Like we want incredibly smart, ambitious folks to help us fulfill our mission, but we can't lose sight of the fact that at the end of the day, we're here to serve our patients and our users. And there's an element of humanity that goes along with that. So if those things sort of resonate, then I think we may be right for you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Erin. We really appreciate it, your time. Thank you for having me. This has been great.